This week's topic, if we meet the Buddha along the road, let's ask for help. Transcending our egos and revolutionize ourselves. This is James Maynard, co-host, along with your host, Beth Green, and welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio. In a world where it is so important to be number one, to win, to get ahead, it's hard for us to relax into the idea that someone else has more talent, wisdom, or anything else we think important. We're embarrassed when we strike out because the pitcher is more skilled or lose the scholarship to the younger person who is smarter. In the same way, we feel humiliated in the face of people with greater awareness or integrity. In theory, we could think, wow, that person could help me. But unconsciously, we feel exposed, inadequate, and downright jealous. Sometimes we even pretend that they're wrong, because we can't stand how we feel about ourselves in the face of those who are wiser. We tend to emotionally kill off our greatest people. So who's left to help? Let's stop this pattern. The egoic need to look good is blocking us from accepting help, but we can change that. If we meet the Buddha, let's ask for help. But how do we overcome our competitiveness? Stay tuned for a great discussion. And now, here's Beth. Hi, welcome everybody. Welcome all of our regular and new Voice America listeners and all of our uh, Listeners on our wonderful Pacifica affiliates, welcome to all of you. Well, today, Helen Hillux is going to be interviewing Beth Green. Beth Green, you already know, or maybe you don't. This may be your first show. And Helen, you may, you may have heard her. She has been on our show from time to time, and she's always a wonderful guest. And she's also asked us great questions. So today, Helen is going to be our co-host Hi, Helen. Hi, Beth and James. I'm very happy to be here. And I'm going to be that interviewer that asks all those tough questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I told her, be hard hitting. So (laughs) (laughs) she knows I'm fragile. So she's afraid. And everybody's afraid to hit me. Hard light. You know, I could end up on the floor. But anyway, I'm looking forward to having this great conversation with Helen. And also, we're going to be having some uh, people calling in as well, I would imagine. But in the meantime... Uh, this is Inner Revolutionary Radio, which means we are really uh, supporting the idea of the inner revolution, that we need an inner revolution. It's so obvious that we need an outer revolution, isn't it? Well, it's equally obvious that we need an inner revolution, because without it, we aren't going to get to that outer revolution. It's like, oh, my God, what a struggle we're going through on the planet these days. Isn't there something? So anyway, James is going to start with the news of the inner revolution. By the way, for those of you who are brand new, the inner revolution is about uh, changing our attitude so that we are really into oneness, being accountable, and mutual support. Wouldn't that be nice? All right, take it away with the news of the inner revolution, which is how we always start our show. Oh. Beth, by the way, I'm having a little technical difficulty. Uh, Could you go ahead and fill them in on some of the items uh, that we've been talking about for the news? And I'll see if I can overcome this technical problem I've just come up against. Oh, okay. Oh, my God. I love it. I get to read the news, but it'll never sound like James. James is El Suave. When he reads the news, everybody goes, ah, lovely. Okay. So let me see. I'm going to uh, just have to open up. 
the uh, what we've written out as the news, and I'd be happy to do that. I R news. All right. Well, sometimes it seems that the world has gone mad. Anybody else have that feeling? But actually, there's some good news in the midst of the madness. Of course, lots of the past week's news cycle was dominated by the Orlando gay nightclub killing. Lots of attention was focused on the gun issue, and we'll address that later in the news. But here's a couple of hopeful and surprising articles about attitudes towards gay. I think everybody knows that the the Orlando club that was shot up was primarily gay, and also a lot of Puerto Ricans. I understand. So, first from CNN, June 17th. No, I'm trying to sound like James. First from CNN, June 17th. Utah Lieutenant Governor Cox says Orlando attack prompted apology to gays. Now, isn't this a great story? Utah's second highest ranking public official. Utah's second highest ranking public official. That is a Mormon state, which we have a tendency to think of as conservative, which actually... It isn't all so conservative, especially the Salt Lake City area, says that the Orlando massacre has prompted him to apologize to the LGBT community for his role in perpetuating homophobia. Isn't that fabulous? The Republican told CNN that he regretted not standing up for gay people in his youth. He said, sometimes I would make jokes, say things that weren't appropriate, not necessarily to them, but about them on occasion. Those are the things I regret most. Asked about the response he's received so far, Cox said, there have been nothing but positive comments from the left and the right, just universally. That makes you want to cry. He said, that's the crazy thing. It seems like this is what people have felt, but no one really has said it. Cox had apologized at a vigil Monday in Salt Lake City. A video of the speech has gone viral. You know, that tells you that somewhere in the human heart there is some decency. You know, we have to... We have to hope that that's true, don't we? Yes, now, indeed. Yes, indeed. And by the way, I am back now. The technical problem has been resolved. Okay, so you're up to now. Here's another interesting look. I am indeed. Okay. Well, I'm sure people will be very happy to have you back. <laughs> <laughs> and now, here's another interesting look inside changing attitudes toward gays in the Muslim world. <laughs> this is from the Washington Post, June the 18th. Afghan-American groups across the United States this week strongly denounced the Orlando nightclub massacre, saying the attacker, the son of Afghan immigrants, did not represent their community or its beliefs. They also said that Afghan-American views on homosexuality, which is seen as an abomination in their native culture, are becoming more tolerant, especially among members of the younger generation who have been raised in a Western democracy. In a statement, 35 groups... Would that be us... That Western Uh, democracy, is that us? Okay, carry on. Okay. I couldn't help it. Go ahead. Some might question that term, (laughs) democracy. In a statement, 35 groups belonging to the D.C.-based Alliance in Support of the Afghan People said they unequivocally reject the attack and the dehumanization and hate that caused it. Stressing the importance of both our Afghan heritage and our American values, they expressed our support for the city of Orlando and the LGBTQ community and asked that our patriotism not be questions, questioned on the basis of one man's misguided actions. In interviews Thursday and Friday, several Afghan-American professionals and activists said they felt a common bond with the victims because both groups are minorities in the United States. They also said that although homosexuality is still widely rejected and a taboo subject among older Afghan-Americans, 
Younger ones tend to be more accepting of it. And finally, more evidence of a continuing struggle for equality for gays reported by The Guardian June the 19th. There was a march for LGBT rights in Istanbul, Turkey. Riot police fired tear gas and rubber pellets to disperse an LBGT march in Istanbul that had been banned after alternationalists said degenerates could not demonstrate. Right. Authorities, that's well, right. Well, then who can? Who's not degenerate? Who, who's not degenerate, really? <laughs> Authorities have banned transgender and gay pride marches this month, which coincides with Ramadan, the period of fasting for Muslims, citing security concerns about warnings against any such events taking place in Turkey. The courageous protesters marched anyway. Now, for the other side of the Orlando story, you may have been following the madness on gun control legislation, where the Republican-controlled U.S. Senate has voted down gun control legislation over and over, most recently just today. One of the long-heard justifications is that gun control doesn't work. Well, The Guardian reported on June 22nd that Australia's successful gun reforms could inform U.S. policies, researchers say. Listen to this. Rapid-fire long guns were banned in Australia after a gunman used semi-automatic rifles to kill 35 people in April 1996. Australian gun control laws, which also include a buyback program of such guns, have significantly lessened risk of death by gunshot and effectively ended fatal mass shootings in the last two decades. A new study from Australia shows how the country's sweeping gun law Reform was followed by a decline in mass shootings, homicides, and suicides in the last two decades. Since the Orlando killing of 49 people with semi-automatic weaponry, gun control advocates have again presented Australia as an example of successful gun reform. Quote, although America led the world in successful campaigns to reduce the death toll from car crashes, tobacco-related disease, and HIV-AIDS, when it comes to gun death, It seems that ideology and politics are delaying standard public health measures. And as most of you know, there has been a rather dramatic development regarding gun control in our House of Representatives. This story was submitted by Elizabeth, one of our listeners, and it appeared in The Guardian, June 22nd. Georgia Representative John Lewis led a sit-in on the House floor starting Wednesday to force a vote on gun control in the wake of the Orlando massacre. He said, now is the time for us to find a way to dramatize it, to make it real. We have to occupy the floor of the House until there is action. Dozens of Democratic lawmakers joined Lewis in the sit-in. Said Lewis, the time is always right to do right. Our time is now. The sit-in ended today due to Congress's taking a recess. It remains to be seen whether the sit-in will resume when Congress returns. But the movement toward gun control seems to have been picking up steam. Finally, we're going to be telling you about two disturbing climate stories. If you're not already disturbed just by the changes in the weather, listen to this. It demonstrates that activism is still dangerous in our world. The Washington Post reported on June the 20th that last year was the deadliest ever for the world's environmental activists. A report released Monday by the nonprofit watchdog group Global Witness claims that 2015 was the deadliest yet for people who sought to protect their land, forests, and rivers from mining, logging, and dams. The report on dangerous ground, called the 185 deaths it uncovered from news reports and public records, shocking. 
More than three people were killed every week in 2015. According to Bill Kite, the report's author, who said the environment is emerging as a new human rights battleground. The reason, he said, is that hardly anyone is brought to justice for these crimes because governments are assisting a broader corporate quest for resources on virgin land and leaders of indigenous groups are fighting them in remote areas where killers can easily escape or intimidate witnesses. Meanwhile, back in the USA, The Guardian reported on June the 22nd that 66 million dead trees in the Sierra Nevada forests of California could fuel catastrophic wildfires and endanger people's lives. This according to the U.S. Agriculture Secretary. The number of trees killed by drought, a bark beetle epidemic, and warmer temperatures has dramatically increased since last year. Governor Jerry Brown in October declared an emergency forming a task force charged with finding ways to remove the trees that threaten motorists and mountain communities. Brown has pushed for burning the trees at biomass plants to generate electricity, sending them to lumber mills or burning them in large incinerators, removing potential fuel for wildfires. Guys, these 66 million dead trees don't represent all the damage to trees. It's just in the Sierra Nevada area, an area of about six counties. People are alarmed, of course, because the fire danger might hurt us. But it's important to remember that trees are living organisms and imagine what's happening to the wildlife as well. By the way, they produce the oxygen we breathe. You would think the current electoral season would be making climate change a centerpiece for change, but that doesn't seem to be happening, does it? Well, (laughs) what can you say? I just want to add something. Today... We got news that the uh, Supreme Court, because it is divided, has let uh, allowed a lower court. Uh, um, uh, um, what is the word? How uh, appellate court. Appellate court's decision to block President Obama's support for young undocumented, or for the children, American citizens who have undocumented parents, Obama was trying to protect these kids by protecting their parents and also protecting these uh, young undocumented people who've been in their, you know, in this country all their lives. Well, the Supreme Court could not see themselves to overturn this. And that, of course, is because we have a split court for four. So because it's Nobody can make a decision. Everything goes back to the way it was. Well, I mean, in some ways that's helping. That's helping with abortion, but it isn't helping with this. And there is, I mean, there is outrage. There's fear. I just, I didn't want to not mention this because this impacts millions of people in the U.S. plus their families abroad. And um, so it really goes to show you how every single thing counts. It counts that we don't have nine justices. It counts when you don't vote. It counts when we don't pay attention to what's going on on our planet. Everything we do or don't do counts and has an impact. And here's an example of of millions of people being impacted, just like with climate change. I mean, people around the world are suffering. Wildlife around the world is suffering. Plants around the the world are suffering because of our stupidity and our ignorance and our corruption and the corruption of our political system. That 
really counts. Okay, I guess I've said what I had to say on that subject. And greed, too. And greed. Totally. Totally. All right, thank you for the news. You're welcome. We're living in a money-driven world, aren't we? We are. It's so painful, the juxtaposition of the uplifting stories in the beginning about how people are opening their minds and offering support and coming into the oneness, you know, it's so in alignment with the inner revolution, the uh, oneness, accountability and mutual support. And then you go to one of those stories about the climate change and my heart just sinks. Yeah. It's just so devastating and not just the climate change, but the court decision all those poor children, you know, not knowing if their parents are going to be kicked out of the country. And then what would happen to them? Yeah. I mean, people just aren't thinking. No, and they don't have a human face. I mean, if you had someone right in front of you and they had four children and they were undocumented and you knew their children and then you said, do you really want this person to be deported? I mean, aside from the economic impact of some of Trump's crazy ideas, like deporting 11 million people, but even just beyond that, just the human cost, if, if, if the people who are voting for Trump actually knew that their gardener or their house maid or the person at the checkout stand was that person or that they saw those children in the school and saw what they were going through, would they really support that? I don't think so. It's like this lieutenant governor in Utah. It's like he woke up to the human face of the decisions and the policies that we make. As the, which, I mean, I understand there are differences of opinion about how to do the right thing. I can appreciate that. But I'm talking about people who have no interest in doing the right thing, who are manipulating the electorate so that they can do their song and dance or... Or, or push forward their own pet projects or their pet peeves or whatever and have no regard whatsoever for the human impact of what they do. It's the same thing with abortion. I mean, recently I read, was reading about how abortion doctors, I think it was in um, Louisiana, was so overwhelmed because they were down to like, there was one or two <laughs> and they were, they had people coming in from other States or maybe it was the other way around that it was somebody in Texas and the people were coming in from Louisiana. Anyway, they said they couldn't even, they can't do it anymore. They can't take it on anymore of having to perform all these abortions for all these desperate women who don't have the money to fly to Europe, you know, or some other place where there are abortions. The poor people who are suffering every day, because of these ideas, and I can appreciate the concerns on the other side, but you're not looking at that human suffering and that the doctors were going out of their minds. So you see another headline. Oh, there's only three abortion clinics left in the state of Texas or Louisiana or wherever it was. And, you know, what does that actually mean? People don't think. No, people do not think. So you are now in charge, Helen. Well, what a great segue to, you know, to if you meet the Buddha on the road, ask for help because the world is in complete disarray and it's time that we came out of this 
ridiculous millennial uh, pattern. It's it's been going on for thousands of years of our finding someone, making them the guru or the savior or whatever, and then killing them. And you you're talking about it in the episode description of emotionally killing off our greatest people. Well, we actually do it. Yes, we do. We're not just talking about Jesus. I think it was you, Beth, who was saying recently that you read that there were contingents uh, of people in Buddhist time that were also trying to kill him. Yeah, that's what I read. (laughs) And I'm sure I'm sure that there that every person, every great teacher has had that happen. And, you know, Martin Luther King dead. Gandhi. Gandhi dead. We could go on and on. Yeah. So I love the episode description because you are beginning to talk about why this is happening. And that's my first question to you is, can you give us some insight about why people do this self-destructive, ridiculous behavior over and over again of refusing help and even emotionally killing or physically killing those that could actually make a difference in our terribly troubled world. Thank you, Helen. I I think that um, there are several aspects uh, to this question and to this answer. And, um, you know, all of it boils down to ego, what we call ego, was this the sense of separate self. And I could talk about that directly, but let's talk about some of the ways that ego shows up. So let's say you have an insecure, blowhard, alcoholic father. Uh, Not that anyone has ever had such a father, right? Of course not. Never. No, not in our enlightened age. Okay. Or mother. It could just as well be the mother or older brother or somebody. Okay. And that person... That person, that father, that parental figure, that authority figure has one goal in mind, which is to make themselves look bigger than they are. And, gee, I think we have a political presidential candidate who fits the bill. (laughs) And no regard whatsoever to the impact that that person has on anybody or everybody. So now let's say you're, you're growing up. Let's say you're a boy. And you're growing up under the domination of this angry, tyrannical male authority figure. And again, it could be female, but we're just using an example. Okay. So you're going to feel like a worm. You know, don't cry. Uh, That's sissy. Um, You know, I'll teach you a lesson you'll never forget. Uh, All that kind of stuff that comes down on that child. How is that child going to feel? It's going to feel like a like nothing, like absolute nothing. So then what does that child have to do in order to bolster itself? It has to get to be just like the father, right? Because the father right. was probably, there. It, was, it is that way probably because of something that happened to him. I mean, you know, it's, like, it's not like that there are bad people. It's that there is people and we're brought up in a bad way and we're hurt and we're damaged. It's like humanity is damaged goods, just about all of us, right? So that boy feels that he has to prove himself. Now, he's growing up in a world that says that men are supposed to be on top and that they're supposed to look smart and they're supposed to be powerful. And they're supposed to be the provider. 
and they are totally stressed out trying to provide. Their, let's say their um, income is smaller than their wives, God forbid, but which is happening more and more these days. Boy, that person is feeling lousy, 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 lousy about himself. Do you think that that person is going to be the first to jump on the line to say, God bless you, Buddha, I need your help? First of all, he doesn't trust authority because he's been brought up with a negative authority. And then the second thing is that his modeling is that you blow yourself out of proportion big uh, in order to, uh, to look big, to compensate for feeling small. Also, you have to make yourself look big so that somebody else doesn't beat you up. So now, how easy is it going to be for that boy growing into manhood to ask for help? That is one example. That example is millions of people. As simple as that example is, that's millions of people. So that's the feeling bad about themselves. Now, let's say you're a girl. Now, I'm talking about stereotypes because these stereotypes still exist in our society, right? So, and in our world. And so the girl is supposed to be, let's say, the patient understanding one that can fix the family. Let's say that's the model that she gets. And supposing she has two out-of-control parents who can't stop arguing or who beat each other up or who whatever they're doing are incompetent, which so many of us have had. And that girl feels like it's her job uh, to fix it and she can't. So she's going to grow up with a sense of lack of value. Or maybe she or that boy have been molested and treated like, you know, meat and exploited by adults around them. One thing after another makes those children feel negative about themselves. Or suppose, let's get make it worse. And now, on top of that, you're part of a minority group, a despised minority group, a feared minority group. Let's say you're black or you're Hispanic or you're Muslim or whatever it is. Um, or you're in a minority that's Christian that believes that you're supposed to, but you're entitled to run the world. And you're seeing that the world is not working that way anymore so all of that makes you feel powerless and makes you feel stupid and like you aren't doing your job and you're you have no value and so how if how do you feel about yourself it's negative now how many people are actually willing to talk about the fact that they feel negatively towards themselves there are people who are in let's say 12-step programs or who are in therapy, who've gotten used to talking about that. But generally, beyond that, people do not typically talk about it. So these people feel lousy about themselves, and then somebody tells them, you made a mistake when you made this choice, or this is the wrong thing. Now, this is like taking a wound that's already the size of Staten Island, and making it bigger because you're already feeling bad about yourself. So if somebody can see you and see your weaknesses when you already feel weak, it's almost unbearable. So uh, supposing we're all a bunch of racist, unconscious racist pigs, let's say, <laughs> and somebody comes along and says you're an unconscious racist pig, but they don't tell us we're pigs. They tell us you're unfortunately you know, racist, you've made these mistakes, this is not good, this is not helpful, this is not healthy. Well, the first thing you're going to do is defend yourself because you think, but 
I'm wonderful. I have to be wonderful. I, I have to live up to this idea of who I'm supposed to be. I can't let them make me feel bad. So the first way that that Buddha makes you feel bad is that Buddha might actually look at you and see right through your bullshit. But supposing, on the other hand, they don't do any, say anything. They just behave in a different way. They turn the other cheek. They're courageous. Uh, they stand up for uh, you know equality or whatever it is. Maybe they have wonderful qualities in another way. They don't even look at you and tell you where you're off. You already know there's a difference between you and them. You can see in their generosity. You can see in their kindness. You can see in their compassion that there's a better human being than you. That's what you feel. And when you feel that way and when you simultaneously feel responsible, especially to raise a family or to raise children or be the school teacher or the, or the, the, the priest or the minister or whatever it is that you're supposed to do, it's just too much. So it's either because that figure is helping, trying to help you to see where your wounds are or if that figure is just a, a stand for something better, you feel shame. And when you feel shame, what are you going to do? You have to kill off that person that's making you feel bad about yourself. Right on. Uh, I do have several other questions ready for you, but we have Christine in San Diego on hold. Well, we'll have to take her off hold. We do have to take her off hold. So go (laughs) ahead, Christine. Um, I can relate to what you're talking about in, in terms of when people are, you know, more noble, <laughs> courageous, generous, everything. Um, but I just was, it, it also sparked me thinking about today, I was on a call with our, our leadership team at work. And there were a couple of times people said something, including my boss, like laid out this whole structure of like how we're going to approach things over the next few months that I had thought exactly the same thing. Ooh. Oh, how annoying. In another part of the call, someone asked my question, and it was a good question. (laughs) Oh, oh. And I don't want to be that way. Like, the question got asked, and the strategy I was hoping for that I was going to bring up to my boss and make a case for got laid out like it's going to happen. So, like, everything good happened, and yet I feel shitty. Or, I'm sorry, I feel like bad like you know like I should have said that or I'm not going to get credit no one's going to know and then there are times when it's worse when I will let people know that I had the same thought or question or idea and then I know I'm being like even more blatantly obvious about how I'm feeling I am that let me say that I totally (laughs) understand me (laughs) too Oh, my God. That, and see, now we're into another aspect. Because I said this is a very d- complicated and deep question that you're asking. So the first part is I was talking about people who feel l- lousy about themselves. And now there's another aspect of the ego comes up, which is that we believe in our world that if we are not at the top, we're going to be at the bottom. Gee, mm-hmm. guess what? That's true. You know, when when there's one scholarship, and if there's one leadership position, and if there's one of anything, uh, if there's one piece of pie, uh, 
if you don't get it, somebody else will, and then you're a loser. If there's one job and you have, you know, a family to support plus yourself, and you're not going to sit there and pray for the, the best person to get the job. You're going to pray that you're going to get the job. And, of course, the other person is praying that they're going to get the job. So what I'm saying is this is not our fault. It looks like uh, childish nonsense, right? But it's actually way rooted in the survival of people and the species. So if we lived in a world, you want to change that? Change the world. Mm -hmm. If we lived in a world where people were not being judged and were not competing for jobs, positions, income, and that, it would be so much easier for you to say right on Margaret or Georgette or whatever because you're not going to actually lose something. But we all feel that we are going to lose something and we sometimes do. In fact, we often do. If you go in for the, to the test for that scholarship and the, the guy next to you does better, you don't get that scholarship. That may mean you don't go to school or that may mean that you face a lifetime of debt. That's not a joke. So while what we have to do is deal with that on a spiritual, emotional level, we also have to recognize that until our world changes, we're going to have that. If you were in a leadership team where there was no boss and everybody was really trying to work synergistically, then you really would feel so relaxed that someone had laid it all out. You'd think, oh, Mm -hmm. God, what a relief. Because mm-hmm. you're not going to lose anything. It's always the threat that we're going to lose something that we have or something that we think we want or something that we think we should have that makes us get crazy and behave this way. Well, it's, I don't know, it's good, I guess, that it's universal and <laughs> it's also not good. And But there are times like, what about when it's just a group of friends and you feel you need to be the one that's most admired or, I mean, that's not really, there's not one friend or friendship. No, like I think... Like there is one scholarship. But, but you see, what I, I think you're bringing out, Christine, is that our mindsets are set. Ah, uh, okay. Very yeah. early. And we have this belief that we have to be on top. And it may be not even just for financial reasons. Mm-hmm. Let's say this is, uh, I have to look the best to get the guy, or I have to be the smartest to get my mother's approval. There are so many levels on which the ego is operating, telling us that if we aren't the most this or that or the other thing, we are going to lose something we need, and that something could be love. And so this is so set in us at such an early age. And then add to that the fact that everybody else in the room is competing, too. (laughs) They may not even say so. They may not even be aware of it. But that's all happening simultaneously. So, therefore, you're not, you're not just a discrete individual who walks into a group just with your own consciousness. You are part of the oneness when you're working in a competitive, a madly competitive environment. Yeah. And you're with a bunch of girlfriends who are madly competitive. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, yeah. you, and you wonder, what's the matter with you? <laughs> and and no wonder when the when the guru comes along 
everybody in the room wants to kill that guru because that person appears to be at the top. Right, out-competing us all in terms of our virtue. So thank you. Yeah, Exactly, and then everybody can gang up on that person. Why don't we ask James to give out the phone number if... Uh, just for those who don't uh, have it handy. Yeah, I'll hop. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you, Christine. So if you'd like to call in with a question or a comment, call us at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Okay, and in the meantime, uh, I have a couple of questions. The first one is, I want to ask you, because you are the most like the Buddha of anyone, excuse me, that I've ever met, and given this environment of people wanting to kill the Buddha, what is it like for you to live with that? (laughs) Depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Frightening, depressing, uh, demoralizing. Uh, I'm not, you know, that great, you know, I'm not able to totally transcend that feeling. It's lonely. And anybody who's excelled in anything knows what this is like. You know, you can be very lonely because people don't like you. And I had this experience when I was a child, and I appreciate your saying that I'm the most like the Buddha of anyone you've met. But um, when I was a child, I was, you know, a prodigy of some sort on several levels. And uh, the other children just hated me, and they, they didn't pretend. You know, they didn't know better is to think that they should hide this. Right. And they treated me really badly. So I was either alone, or they were making fun of me, or they were throwing things at me, or whatever. And so that was a very, very painful, lonely existence. And then when I discovered that the best defense is a good offense and that the best offense is to help people, (laughs) it's the most offensive thing I could possibly do, was that I tried to help people and I actually had the uh, naive thought that um, I was actually going to be beloved. (laughs) So (laughs) So I was trying to protect myself. By being really good. Of course, what I didn't realize is that was going to make things a lot worse. So, Right, so, because now, now you're not just a prodigy, but you're the nicest person in the world. On top of being a prodigy, that must not be tolerated. Right, and that I'm being nice to them, even though they're being lousy towards me. Right, which makes That's them feel worse. Worse. And I mean, my God, I have had this experience. Well, I, you know, because you've seen it. I mean, I've had this experience such glaring glaring form that it sometimes is shocking and it's very very painful and I really wish that we would all take this seriously and I don't like being this towards other people either I don't like my own competitiveness Uh, you know when I see and when we recognize how much help our world needs there is room for all of us to help you know whether someone else has had your good idea or not That idea has to be implemented. There are so many good ideas that need to be brought to the surface. There's so much love that is needed on our planet. There is so much help that is needed. Every one of us could be the Buddha. You know what I'm saying? Even if we are uh, flawed, as everyone is. And that there is so much space and room for us to really be helpful. And if we could just remember 
what we're dealing with is an incredible amount of suffering, it helps us to overcome that pettiness within us that we all have. Thank you. That's very well said. We do have another caller on hold, Chris, in Vista, California. Go ahead. Hi, Beth. Hi, Helen. Hi, James. Thanks for taking my call. Hi. Hello, Chris. I, I was just so moved by your the poignant chain of vulnerability of you wanting to help and um, feeling the pain of it. And, you know, for the rest of us that are out there just trying to do some, you know, some things to help and not either withdraw because we feel overwhelmed with the pain of others or go into shame because we see how little we do. Do you have any, you know, words of wisdom or encouragement for us? Well, I think that's a perfect segue from what I was just talking about. The need is so great that anything that you do is important. You know, the person who their contribution is to bring meals to the elderly who are locked up in their houses. I mean, you're, you are changing the life of that person, and, and you may not even appreciate the value of what you're doing. Granted, we need more than that. We need to reorganize our society so that the elderly aren't locked up in their rooms <laughs> and that we don't have to do it this way. We need to be in a different kind of world, and we need to all co-create that. But not everybody is a visionary. And not everybody is going to have the courage of these LGBT activists in Turkey who went out and got tear gassed, you know. But each one in our own way can make a contribution to the well-being of the whole and can support if we can remember that and value whatever we do give. My God, then we can actually welcome those who are who are able to do more. I am actually very happy when I see people now you know, I've grown a little bit in my 71 years, right? I'm not as competitive as I used to be. You know, when I see the people out there who are doing good, I think, oh, thank you, God, that there's somebody out there who has the energy, the intelligence, the wisdom, the knowledge, the organizational skills, whatever, to be able to to accomplish that. I feel more capable of helping when there's others helping too. I can't take on the consciousness of the planet by myself. And neither can you. So it's just the opposite of the way we're seeing it. It's that when others, oh, my God, if there were 25,000 Buddhas on the planet, oh, I would be a happy camper, I think. I might have a moment of jealousy and feel bad about myself. Then I get over it because I could relax into knowing that there are people out there who have the wisdom and the skills. And maybe it's not going to be a Buddha or a Jesus you know, or probably we killed them already. So, but if there are, everyone brings a little bit of that consciousness forward, then we can all just do our part and feel less pressured to be the genius who's going to change the world. I can't be the genius who's going to change the world because I'm not that smart. I don't have that kind of power, but I can be one of millions who can help change the world. So the more that there are people with those positive qualities, the better off I am and the better I can feel about my contribution. Because if I'm not comparing it to theirs, then I can feel like my contribution is actually doing something. See, we can do our small thing 
and feel good about it if we can see that it helps. But if we're bringing, let's say, you know, a sandwich to the elderly person who's uh, living in their home and their caregiver is uh, is uh, responsible for elder abuse and is beating them up, what is my sandwich going to do? So if so, you're, you understand what I'm saying? It's like the more... Yeah. Good people, and the more progress we make on so many fronts, the better we can feel about our contribution, no matter how small it is, because we're not overwhelmed by all that darkness. Thanks, Beth. Thanks so much. Thank you. I I love what you were saying, Beth, about the need is so great, and if you give what you have, you'll feel better about yourself, and then you're not going to kill the Buddha because you, you have aligned yourself with the Buddha. Right. Love that. We have another caller on hold, Tracy in Phoenix, Arizona. Thank you, Tracy. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Well, thanks for surviving the heat wave. I've, I've been oh my reading God, about... I'm dying. <laughs> I'm dying slowly. <laughs> yeah, oh God, but, I guess, but I guess that there's no global warming, is there? Oh, right, yeah. Just come to the desert and <laughs> dry up in like five seconds, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well... Thank you for the, the, the conversation today. I've, I've been able to jump on a little later, but it's, um, you know, I'm really touched by what you're saying in terms of connecting to, you know, wanting to help. And I, I wondered if you had any advice for, you know, that place where the ego comes in and wants to help from an ego perspective, you know, so it's like, yeah, I want to help to look good or, you know, that same kind of ego mentality of not really being genuine in terms of wanting to help people, but it still feeds the ego in some way. So then when it doesn't, you know, pan out the way you want, there's a disappointment or, I don't know, I just feel like I, that, that that's a struggle. Like, I know there's a part of me that has that deep desire to help, and then there's a part of me that gets stuck in how helping looks, you know, how I yeah. look as a help. And that's like, you know, obviously the wrong motivation, and it doesn't sustain that desire to keep doing it despite all the challenges or the overwhelming, you know, nature of just the sheer need. So I don't know if you had any advice for that. Well, I don't know if I have advice, but I I do have some observations. So um, this is a very good question. Okay, so how can the ego be turned around? Well, first of all, if, if the desire to help is completely run by the ego, it's so obvious It may not be obvious to everybody all of the time, but it'll be obvious to a lot of people. There's a feeling that you have that somebody is just using the misery of others or riling them up or uh, to make themselves look big and to puff themselves up. And for so many of us, that is such a complete turnoff. And um, it's also a trap because, as you say, if your ego is involved, then you want to have results. Like you're looking for the results to make yourself feel good. So it's not the act of kindness in and of itself. You have to save the person. It's not enough to hold their hand when they're dying. You have to save them so you can walk around feeling like you're really good. So, And we talked in in the earlier times why we do this is about how badly we we feel about ourselves and how inadequate Mm -hmm. we feel. But what I do also uh, want to suggest is that there's a way that the ego can align itself with the soul. See, we can't necessarily overcome our egos, at least not right away. But we can call upon our egos to align themselves with our souls instead of the opposite way. See, what the ego does is it tries to control our 
behavior completely and our whole personality. So let's say, oh, I have to spend all of my energy looking good to other people. And that's what my ego wants. And so my soul and my spirit, they have to get on board with that. So we completely suppress ourselves. But let's say we say, okay, we have an ego. It's part of us. It's something I'm going to talk about in another show about what exactly is the ego and you know, what does it do? do what is, what's its purpose? And how can we change our relationship with it? But let's say I know from my soul that I am called to do a certain kind of work, whether it looks good to the rest of the world or not, whether I become famous or not, whether people like me or not. I know that I need to do counseling, for example. I Personally, I have that. People, a lot of times, they don't like me when they are in counseling because they don't like what I have to say to them because it's true, right? So, If my ego is going to dominate in that situation, I'm not going to do it. But let's say I say, okay, my soul has a calling to do this work. Now, how can I support my ego to support this? I can say to my ego, you know, we're going to feel so much better about ourselves if we do this. Or we are loved. There are people who do love us. Or we can see that there's been a lot of progress with certain people. So that I'm speaking to my ego. I'm not letting it dominate me, but I'm trying to bring it on board. <laughs> mm. And you know, and I'll say to it, okay, so maybe if I do this, I'm going to not get the, the great job or not make lots of money or not be popular. But I will feel good about myself. And here's a handful of people who really do support me. And how much more important that is than having all this money and, you know, all I'm going to do is put it up my nose anyway because I'm so, I'll be so messed up. And that's what you see with so many famous people, right? They have everything Mm -hmm. in the world except a sense of inner well-being and love and intimacy. It's how sad that is. So, you know, we we, we keep educating our egos and try to bring them on board. So that would be my suggestion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I love what you said. I'm going to take away from this show and tattoo it on my wrist that what what can we do about this is that we can help our egos align with our souls. Yeah. I, I love that statement. And we have another caller on hold, Rose from California. Go ahead, Hello. Rose. Hello, Rose. Hi. Well, this may seem simple on, and maybe silly, but I wonder, do you recommend just pretty much walking this earth and seeing everybody as broken and, you know, fragile and in need of love? Uh, Yes and no. Um, I think that pretty much everybody is broken and fragile and in need of love, so I would agree with you on that, (laughs) Rose. I mean, I certainly am, and, you know, people think of me as very strong and, uh, you know, and uh, and impressive. I have a very impressive history and all of that. But actually, you know, I'm I'm struggling too, like everybody else. But I think that at the same time, it's also important to say that there are some people on this earth who are less broken. Maybe they're just as fragile, and we all need love. But I think that the whole point of this particular show is if we meet the Buddha, embrace her. <laughs> at them because we need to start recognizing when we meet people 
who have an exceptional capacity in one way or another. Now, that could be you're someone who is an exceptional mathematician doesn't mean that they're a, you know, an exceptional human being on other levels. They may be very broken in need of love at the same time. But what I'm saying is that there are exceptional people and there are people with exceptional spiritual strength. And instead of trying to bring us them down to our level, which it was the other side of what you're saying. See, the upside is what I've already shared, addressed, but the downside of it is that you have to make everybody look like they are equally broken so that you don't feel bad about yourself. Well, you don't need to do that either. Mm. So you see what I'm saying? So when you meet someone with exceptional spiritual strength, for instance, or other kinds of capacities, let's be grateful that they exist. It's the brilliant doctor who might actually be able to help you with your health, not the guy who makes you feel better about yourself because he's as ignorant as you are. (laughs) (laughs) And I I could have said we. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay, Okay, so Helen, would you like to uh, bring uh, James into this to announce the next show and then we can see how much time we have left in the end? I would. I've got a question I'm dying to ask you, but I guess we can't ask it. So, James, tell us about the next show. We've got three minutes. Yes, and then you can ask it after. There you go. Next week, don't leave it to Trump. Let's address income inequality in a way that serves the highest good of all. Get the facts from Josh Hoxie. Bernie Sanders has brought income inequality into the public conversation. When almost all new wealth is going to the top, and literally 20 individual Americans own as much as the bottom one half of all of us, we can see that growing income inequality is crushing our American dream of equal opportunities for all. Not only does it impact the health, education, and welfare of the poor, which is a tragic loss of human potential, it's impacting every one of us. How bad is income inequality in the U.S.? Why is it worsening? How does it affect health, education, and the economy? How is it impacting the elections? Josh Hoxie of the Institute for Policy Studies and Inequality.org has the scoop and will share it with us. He's bright, passionate, and also a former legislative aide to Bernie Sanders. Donald Trump is exploiting people's pain about income inequality. Let's turn our anger or denial into information and mobilization. We are one, and we can make the difference. Information is power. So tune in. Now for a final word. From Helen, what is your quick question? (laughs) I really want to ask you about this pattern that we kill the Buddha and then we sanctify that person. And what's that about? That is a way that we separate from ourselves and how we really are. (laughs) We can't face the fact that we have killed the Buddha. So we get angry at those who did. I didn't do that. That wasn't me. I didn't have anything to do with that. Oh, wasn't that person great? And the second part of that is the obvious, of course, which is that that person is no no longer alive to make us feel bad about ourselves. So now we huddle together with other flunkies, and that's the way it feels to me, who are now (laughs) worshiping this, this character, right? And then we puff ourselves up by being the advocates, the followers, the disciples of this great being that we just murdered. So, hey, we, we've got the ego gets it every way. I am not that. I didn't kill him. Or 
I, or even if I did, I am now awakened and I'm one of those smart people just as long as he's not around to tell me what I'm doing and to make me look bad now. And to point out that I'm not actually following what the teachings were anyway. Absolutely. God forbid we should actually follow the teachings, what the real essence of the teachings are, because then we would have to do unto others as we would have others do unto us. And for God's sakes, that would change everything. Yes, it would. Thank you so much, Beth. I've so enjoyed interviewing you on this topic. I could ask you a hundred more questions and maybe you'll write some blogs about this that we can read about. In the meantime, thank you. Bless you for all the work you do. And we're lucky to have you. Oh, thank you, Helen. And I feel the same way about you. And in fact, what we're going to be doing, I think, is we're going to be having over time other topic shows. And uh, you may be back. I I would love to be. Great. You've got a date. Thank you. Okay. God bless everybody. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us. 